Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, May 11th, 2023. Joining us this week is the Director of the Honolulu Emergency Services Department, or HESD, Dr. James Ireland. Dr. Ireland, thanks for making time for us. Good morning, Brandi. So for those that aren't familiar, tell us a little bit about what your department is responsible for, because that's changed a bit over the last two years or so. Changed a lot over the last 20 years, but... Um, Historically, the city and county of Honolulu has had a health department. And when I first started in this department in about 1994, we had a Honolulu health department. The health department was made up of ambulance, the ambulance division, and the uh, health services uh, branch, which is where everyone who wants to work at the city gets physicals, and people um, who work at the city who needed a recurring physical or return to work physicals after they're injured, uh, kind of occupational medicine. So it was those two sections historically. Then about 20 years ago or so, um, the Honolulu Emergency Services Department uh, was the new department replacing the health department. And that then ambulance was now called Emergency Medical Services or EMS. And the uh, Ocean Safety and Lifeguard Division, which had been in the Department of Parks and Recreation, came and formed part of Emergency Services. So the Honolulu Emergency Services Department today is EMS, which is the ambulance service, Ocean Safety, which is the lifeguard and rescue and the 41 towers around Oahu, and Health Services, which is our occupational uh, medicine branch. Most recently, about a year ago, we also now have a uh, community medicine branch, which houses core crisis outreach response and engagement for the homeless. And so that all encompasses our uh, department, which is basically public service, medical, uh, rescue, health, uh, for the city and county of Honolulu. I know that you've been out to a lot of the town hall meetings that mayor has hosted. A question that came up last week in Waialua um, was regarding splitting up ocean safety and EMS into separate departments. So what's the latest there and why would something like that work in your mind? Well, first of all, you know, I think historically the lifeguards were in the parks because the beach parks is where we have um, right. lifeguard towers. And that made a lot of sense for a period of time. And I think as first responders, at some point, the lifeguards felt they needed to be in another uh, more um, emergency response oriented department. And then they came to what's now Honolulu Emergency Services. I think it's worth noting on the three neighbor islands, Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island, that uh, the lifeguard um, divisions are part of the fire department. So that's how they operate on the neighbor islands. But for whatever reason, they didn't in 20 years ago when they left parks, go to the Honolulu Fire Department. They came with EMS to emergency services. But I think as a, it's a young, um, it's a younger, and what I mean by younger uh, profession is that, you know, when you look at the fire department in Honolulu, they were founded, I believe, in the mid-1800s. Um, the police department has probably been around for uh, the same amount of time, over 150 years. Um, Honolulu has been doing ambulance service for about 100 years, but initially it was under the police department um, in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, a lot of the private hospitals provided ambulance service in the 30s and 40s, and then city and county health departments since at least the 1940s. Um, but ocean safety and lifeguarding services, you know, for the longest time we didn't even have lifeguards. Then we'd had, you know, one or two here and there, kind of roving patrols in the 60s and 70s, and then the towers came. So when you look at the evolution of how long ocean safety and lifeguarding has been around as a profession, it's much, it's much younger than police, fire, and, and now ambulance EMS. Um, having said that, you know, they um, believe that to 
solely focus on what they do best, um, there's some thought that maybe as their own department um, with ocean safety experts uh, leading that department, um, they could perhaps provide even a better service to the public than they are now. So that's the thought. Would there be any kind of benefit, I guess, when it comes to funding? Well, you know, like, let's let's look at my situation. You know, I'm the director of this big department, over 500 people. And when I go to the mayor, when I go to the city council, I have to advocate for what we need in EMS. I have to advocate for what we need in ocean safety. Mm-hmm. I have to advocate for what we need in health services and now core. And I advocate equally across those divisions. And I, I use a lot of what the division chiefs um, and, and the uh, managers in those divisions tell me they need as far as personnel, funding, equipment. Um, but I think there's some thought that if, for instance, if I just had EMS and was only going to the mayor for those needs and someone else uh, had ocean safety, or even if I just had ocean safety and not EMS mm-hmm. and went to the mayor and the city council, uh, could advocate more strongly for the needs of what the men and women of the division or the department need. Um, you know, I think the previous director of our department was from Ocean Safety, Jim Howe. He had a more than 20 or 30 year career with that department, um, but he wasn't an expert in EMS. He did not have a background in EMS. Whereas I have a more than 30 year background in EMS, I don't necessarily have a background in ocean safety. Um, I think when I was a teenager, I was a lifeguard uh, at Kahala, mm-hmm. uh, YMCA, but I've never been an ocean safety, um, open ocean water lifeguard. Um, uh, so. You know, I think that's the thought, that there could be um, advocacy um, um, with a single focus uh, if, if there was a director of ocean safety with its own department and then the medical with core and EMS and perhaps even uh, health services in its own department. Right, because we know that the needs there are different. So let's take, for for example, EMS. We know they carry heavy load. We've seen in the news about the call volume and just everything they dealt with during the pandemic. Um, and there's, of course, the natural stresses and the pressure that comes with the work they do. What's being done to support those folks? Because we've kind of heard the difficulties that they're dealing with right now. Sure. EMS was um, challenged, obviously, during COVID with the fear and the need for additional protection, uh, the risk to their own health before there was a vaccine. Very stressful. Now, what was interesting is when there were no tourists here, very few tourists here, and the stores were closed down and people couldn't go to the you know, spend time on the beaches, they could still go in the ocean. EMS's call volume actually went down about 20%. So you'd have these very um, frightening surges where there'd be a lot of COVID calls and everything was very busy. And then when those surges would go away, it would quiet down for EMS. And these lulls where there was not the normal volume of calls. Well, now that COVID is, it's not behind us, but it's largely behind us. um, Call volume is higher than 20%, higher than pre-COVID numbers. And it's for a lot of reasons. The tourists are back. Um, people have, I think, felt cooped up because of COVID. So people are hiking more, which is great. They're out in the oceans more, which is great. They're out on their bikes and motorcycles, which is great. But all those activities have some risk mm-hmm. and it's creating more calls from accidents and injuries and sometimes reckless behavior, but not always. Sometimes it's just what we call accidents. The other thing is I think People didn't have the normal access to their own doctors during COVID. Mm-hmm. They didn't go in and get their blood pressure checked maybe as much as they should have, their sugars checked. And so we're seeing more calls for diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, high blood pressure. So that call volume is up. Now on top of all of that, we're still getting an occasional COVID call every day. And then this thing, fentanyl, has crept up on us. Right. Um, fentanyl is a very powerful narcotic. 
Um, we've seen it in the mainland causing spikes of overdoses, and we've seen it here now too. Um, you know, our, our crews now are going on probably one fentanyl overdose a day, and that's why, you know, maybe a discussion for another day is Narcan and how people can protect friends and family members who may be addicted to fentanyl or other narcotics, because that can actually save somebody. The other thing we're seeing in EMS, unfortunately, is a higher incidence of self-harm, people trying to hurt themselves. Um, and it's very, very sad. And again, I think this is from some psychological injuries people experience during COVID, whether it's from isolation, economic factors, loss of jobs, um, but we're going on sometimes more than 10 overdoses a day, uh, people trying to hurt themselves. So all of that in totality is creating a lot of calls for EMS. And we have recognized that we need to get more ambulances on the road. And the mayor um, and, and my boss, Mike Formby, the managing director, were very supportive. Um, they've funded two additional ambulances in the upcoming budget. Um, so we're planning on uh, putting an ambulance um, somewhere in, in town, probably Kakako or Manoa. And we're also planning to put an ambulance in uh, Kalihi. And that's in the new fiscal year that starts in July. Um, we're also redeploying some of our existing ambulances. So we're looking at taking maybe an ambulance or two off the night shift when it's a little slower and redeploying them to the day shift when it's a lot busier. If you look at EMS, you know, we have 22 ambulances right now. Um, sometimes at two o'clock in the afternoon, there's 25, 30 EMS calls on this island at, at simultaneously. And so when it's that many with 22 ambulances, we use our core ambulances to help, mm -hmm. which is uh, basic life support ambulances, as well as a few uh, contracted ambulances with the private ambulance company, American Medical Response. They give us dedicated up to three ambulances a day to help out with these surges. So we may, have, again, have 20 to 30 ambulance calls at two o'clock in the afternoon, um, but at two in the morning, we may only have four ambulance calls or six ambulance calls. So looking at redeploying some of those night ambulances to the daytime and, and peak times, I think will help lessen um, the load for the folks working in the days, as well as improve response times. You talked about funding those additional vehicles, but how are we in terms of personnel? Are we getting enough bodies? What's the recruitment like? And I guess, what are we doing to support those that are already, you know, doing this really a tough job? So as far as recruitment, you know, we um, had historically hired people from KCC who've gone through the EMT or paramedic program, and that's the program I went through. And um, we also hire people coming out of the military or the mainland if they have equivalent training and can get a state of Hawaii EMT license. Um, but you know, we weren't just, we just weren't getting enough people coming out of KCC. Um, they have you know usually two classes a year, but we're competing. We're competing with the fire departments, um, the ERs, the private ambulance company. So about two years ago, we started our own academy, and we were, um, have had around 20 students in in three academies. Um, but our academy for July, uh, which is you know just a month from now, um, we have about 45 people slated to start. Wow. The largest academy we've ever had, and that's what we're going to need to do if we need to um, grow our ranks. Um, we need to just have bigger academies and bring people into EMS because it's a very, very rewarding field, uh, but it's not for everybody. There's a lot of stress um, and uh, you work nights, you work weekends, you work holidays. So again, it's not for everybody, but for the people who really enjoy it and really love it as their career, I, a lot of them can't see doing anything else. Shifting to your other division, Ocean Safety, who deal with arguably the most dangerous conditions in the world uh, when you look at surf and size. What's being done to support those folks? Do they have enough bodies? W what are their challenges? You know, ocean safety has historically had a very low vacancy rate, um, mm -hmm. probably one of the lowest in the city. 
um, which means people enjoy coming into Ocean Safety and they stay there, which is wonderful. They, we, you know, we have the best lifeguards in the world. We also have the best paramedics in the world. Um, and that's why just being the director of such a prestigious department, such an honor for me. Um, you know, the lifeguards, they do a few things that just amaze me. Um, well, they do more than a few things, but it's a few things I'll mention. One is what they don't get a lot of credit for is something called preventative actions. And they will stop people on the beach, in the parking lot, on their way to the ocean and give them some education, especially when it's um, dangerous conditions, higher surf than normal, um, unusual tides, or maybe the folks who are showing up at the beach don't look like they've been to that beach mm -hmm. before. And they'll just give them some education. And sometimes the best advice they give is you probably shouldn't go in the water today here and maybe try this beach or that beach down the road that's a lot safer. You know, especially like at Sandy Beach, you know, if you've never been here, that's just really not a safe beach to take, especially young ones um, because of the conditions there. So the preventative action saves thousands and thousands of people a day that never, excuse me, not a day, a month or a year that never knew they needed to be saved. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing, the preventative actions. But then the other thing is because they're right there on the water, they're first on scene to any emergency that happens on the sand. Passing out, trip and fall, unfortunately sometimes fentanyl overdoses, um, any accidents right around the water, and then of course in the water, they will brave any surf condition to go get somebody. Um, amazing 30, 40, 50 foot surf on the North Shore. And even when there's a South Swell on the South Shore, they'll get out there. And with the Rescue Ski Program, they can get out there quite fast. And even now we're having hikers, like we had this weekend, injured on some of the, the outer, um, the islands offshore. And the skis can get there so fast when they're on duty that they get the victims to shore. Um, sometimes, you know, at the same time, the ambulance gets to the, gets to the beach. So um, just incredible amount of preventative actions and rescues just do such a good job for everyone keeping everybody safe when it comes to getting them support though mayor hasn't been shy about this talking about how we really need to do more for our lifeguards he recently got a chance to tour some of the conditions that the north shore lifeguards are dealing with he got to take a tour of their headquarters which was like uh, it looked like a house that was no one was living there for years almost but what's being done there this is the north shore we're talking about some of the best surf in the world right so you know we have fire stations, we have police stations, we have a few EMS stations, but be, again, because this is such a young profession in ocean safety, they weren't just kept up with the facilities uh, or had their own facilities like these other um, first responder departments. Part of it was, you know, historically they were with parks, so they did used parks facilities, mm -hmm. um, like at Ala Moana or at Cocoa Head, um, Cocoa Head, but, you know, they really need their own stations. And we do have funding um, for a station that hopefully is gonna break ground soon in Kailua, uh, it's near um, the boat ramp. It's a small rescue station, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they really need large um, uh, multi-base stations where they can have their officers, their equipment, um, a place to shower. So um, the mayor is committed to a project on the North Shore, somewhere around Sunset Beach. Um, we've had one community meeting, um, but we're looking at a joint EMS and ocean safety um, district headquarters where we'd have an ambulance the rescue skis, the ocean safety captain and lieutenants, um, somewhere again around Sunset Beach. And we're also looking for a similar type of arrangement in the Kakako area, um, somewhere down um, in Kakako with again, where we could put an ambulance, the jet skis, the captain, the lieutenants and have a um, base of operations um, for that district in ocean safety. Because right now, um, you know, while the North Shore is operating out of a dilapidated old house that the city condemned, um, in, in the Waikiki area, they're operating kind of in the bowels of the Nanatorium. Right. So completely unsatisfactory um, 
And on that note, we also need a district headquarters um, in the Waianae area, um, perhaps near where they are now, and also in probably the Hawaii area. So a lot to do, um, but we do have planning money, I believe, for the Kakako station and the North Shore station in the next budget, which starts in July. So that planning and, and the way these work is there's planning, environmental impact studies, and then you do design and construction funding. So probably in the following year's budget will be the design and construction money. But we really need to, um, and whether they stay with EMS or they are their own department, they absolutely need better facilities. And so, you know, I just really can't, I don't know, I can't look in the rearview mirror and, and not fully understand why there's been this neglect for mm -hmm. such a prestigious um, group of first responders in our city. Um, but it's time to look forward and I think we have good plans. Um, but for me personally, they can't happen fast enough. I want to go back to something you said because it kind of caught my attention. You said that lifeguards are also dealing with these fentanyl cases. So does that mean that your lifeguards are able to administer Narcan? Because when it comes to lifeguards, they don't have a whole lot of PPE. Right. So legally, they are um, able to, to um, administer Narcan. And we're trying to, as a department right now, decide what's the best way, uh, if at all, to deploy Narcan to the lifeguards. You yeah. know, maybe it would just be the mobile responders. Maybe it would be to the tower to the tower guards as mm -hmm. well. But one thing we we are 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 um, one thing we're concerned about is if we give too much for the tower guards to do that's not facing the water. Yeah, they could be distracted by other things going on in other places and not watching the water because nobody else is doing that. So that would be the only thing is I wouldn't want to give them so much to do on the beach or in the parking lot or on yeah. the roadways around the tower that it takes them out eyes on the water because nobody else is doing that. Whereas our mobile responders, our lieutenants in the trucks that respond to emergencies, perhaps that might be a better fit for the Narcan mm. um, because they're not necessarily watching the beach, they're responding to emergencies. And while we're on the subject of your remarkable lifeguards, Luke Shepardson winning the Eddie this year, you were there that day. What was that like for you? You know, um, it was busy because there were people in the crowd getting injured and a kid fell out of a tree and some people down the street got washed under a house. Mm -hmm. and, and it was just, it was huge surf. So forget the 30 or 50,000 people or how many people were out there. It was, it was dangerous conditions for right. the public. Not to mention anytime you have tens of thousands of people in a crowd, you know, medical emergencies can mm -hmm. pop up. So I was, I think, most concerned with just making sure the lifeguards, the ocean safety folks and the paramedics out there had everything they needed to do their jobs. Um, but occasionally I'd watch a set or two. And you know, I think when I saw him catch the second, his second heat wave, and it was something like a 50 plus foot wave, it was huge. And he did such a good ride. Um, in my head, I'm like, wow, he's gonna win this thing. And if not, he's gonna come in second. But I thought, yeah, this guy's gonna win this thing. So we talked about EMS, ocean safety. Your department also, like you mentioned, oversees the CORE program. How's that going? CORE is a federally, mostly federally funded program. There's some city funds as well uh, to engage uh, homeless individuals who are in crisis, and, and most are. Um, they've been around about a little over a year now. Um, we have about 30-something members, a doctor, a couple nurses, Half a, about a dozen EMTs, emergency medical technicians. We run two to three ambulances every day, basic life support, as well as a group of about 15 community health workers. They go out and engage the homeless and find out what's going on. They, they get trust. Um, they let them know they're not there to hurt them, but they figure out why they're on the streets, what's going on. And sometimes it's just financial. And actually those are the easy ones. Um, sometimes it's drugs. And then it's a matter of how can we help you get treatment for your addiction. Sometimes it's mental illness. 
Um, and then the challenge is how do we get you treatment for your mental illness and stabilize you? And then sometimes it's uh, things like dementia, especially in the older folks. Um, and those are particularly sad because through no fault of their own, folks find themselves on the streets in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s. And those are the ones that we're really focusing on addition to, in addition to children um, to really make the priority to get them off the streets. Um, some of the stuff they do for them would be considered sort of mundane. Let's get you an ID. Let's get you SNAP benefits so you can get food. Let's get you health insurance that you're entitled to, whether it's Medicaid or VA. Um, but those things are very important because without that, you can't get a place to stay. You can't get a job. You can't eat. Um, so that's one layer. The other thing is now we have a free clinic that we use. We're partnering with um, the JABSOM, the medical school, and we provide a doctor some days, and a lot of times it's the medical students and the, and the faculty from JABSOM. So on Pawahi Street, we have a medical clinic where we can take the homeless to get care to try to give our ERs a break because all the ERs are, especially in town, overwhelmed with all kinds of patients, but especially homeless, who are going there for not true emergencies. They're going there for wounds, blood pressure, they're hungry. And so we're trying to mitigate that uh, with a clinic. Now, the other thing we're gonna be opening up, hopefully sometime later this month in May, is a medical respite. And one of the problems I think that we've encountered is people who maybe have a bad wound or are a little decompensated with a mental illness, um, maybe they have an amputation, they can't necessarily go to a regular shelter because in a regular shelter, you have to be able to do what's called ADLs, activities of daily living. You have to be able to bathe, you have to be able to take care of yourself. And if people are in such condition that they can't or they have dementia, um, they can't go to a regular shelter. But they're also not sick enough to go to a hospital and stay overnight in a hospital. Um, so they're kind of in this gray area that right now we don't have anywhere to put these folks. So essentially they stay on the street. And you've seen some news stories probably recently where people are kind of just living outside hospitals because they get discharged from the hospital, walk 10 feet off the property and just stop there and that's where they park themselves. So really to focus on those medically fragile patients, we're opening up about a 25 bed medical respite um, in Evale, the Evale Resource Center um, this month and um, CORE is gonna run it. Long-term, uh, we may transfer that to a nonprofit or to even to the state, um, but we have an immediate need for folks to get off the streets um, that are fragile medically. Now, once they're in this unit, we're gonna triage them. And our plan is to have them out of the medical respite within one to two months, within 30 to 60 days. Now, where do they go? If they're stabilized, they can go into a regular shelter or even housing, low-cost housing. Um, the governor's talking about um, small village Kauhales. They could perhaps go into one of those. Um, but if they have advanced dementia or medical illness or medical problems, they may need to go into a nursing home or even foster care. Um, the state also has nursing homes at Malohia and Liahi Hospital. So perhaps we could put people there or you know, one of the thousands of foster cares around Oahu um, with the you know, proper insurance covered. So we have these options, but we see this Evil A Resource Center as a node to just get people off the sidewalk and off the streets, triage them there, get them stabilized, get them medical care, and then move them off to whatever is appropriate for their long-term um, long well-being. The city already has a Office of Homelessness, Office of Housing, but why did this become an HESD issue? Why is homelessness now kind of in your Kuleana. You know, Anton Krocki was the uh, um, Office of uh, Housing Director, um, 
and he wanted to find out a better model to take care of the homeless. And we had about six meetings, and I was part of it. The police were there, the nonprofits were there, some homeless individuals were there. We had six meetings uh, over about six weeks. We brainstormed the best way to deploy a team and make a team, and, and CORE was born. And we were on the steps of City Hall one day on Luhale, and I just told him, I said, we can do this. And, uh, and that's how it literally happened. Him and I just had that conversation. But the reason I said we could do this is this was mental illness. This was drug abuse. It was dementia. It was medical problems. It was all medical. And it wasn't police. It wasn't law enforcement. It was um, medical and social, medical care and social work. And, and so that's kind of how it was born. You know, the Office of Housing, historically, in the mayor's office has had a very small staff. And it's, uh, in my opinion, more of a policy office and a, a, a center of excellence for policy and, and where we need to go as a city to get people off the streets and housing. Um, and as an as a, as a expert for the mayor and someone who can give the mayor um, policy expertise versus an uh, actionable um, on the streets kind of roll up your sleeves, help people. The office is just too small. I think there's Three, three or four positions there. Um, and so we had some federal funding, the FRF funding, and now we have congressionally directed funding, and it ended up with HESD. Now, whether it'll stay here forever, um, you know, I don't know, but for now, it seems to work. Um, the core team works well with the police and EMS, um, but I think they're fi finding um, a niche because EMS doesn't necessarily need to respond to non-emergency homeless complaints either, even though they're medical, and certainly the police don't. Um, you know, the police are trained um, to do law enforcement, and they don't necessarily have the training and the tools to deal with things like medical problems and mental illness. Mm -hmm. So you're asking the police to deal with something that, that's really not in their wheelhouse, and it really wasn't fair to them. Um, but CORE works very well with the police. Um, you know, we'll walk sometimes with the community policing teams together with them. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that CORE has such a good rapport with uh, what we call their clients or the homeless, that a lot of times when they're engaging people in the last year, they've, I think, maybe only on one occasion had to call the police to go help them because the person's escalating. Um, they're trained in de-escalation, the core teams are, they're trained in how to you know, work with people. So fortunately, um, you know, we haven't had a situation or haven't had too many situations where um, we've felt in danger. I think one time, one of the core members did get punched by a homeless person. Um, just recently, somebody got bit by one of the homeless person's dogs. Luckily, it wasn't a serious bite. So there is some risk, but um, we feel we work very well with the police. We're trying to take work away from them that they shouldn't necessarily be doing so they can focus on criminality. Um, we're trying to take work away from EMS, the core teams are, mm -hmm. so they can focus on life-threatening emergencies. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I, I really believe is that when you look at a group of homeless individuals, and once we get this respite open and can really channel people into appropriate long-term housing and, and care, the wraparound care for their mental illness and, and, and medical issues and substance abuse, we will get a lot of people who are homeless off the streets. And we know there's the criminal criminals mm -hmm. hiding amongst the homeless and preying not only on citizens and, and, and bystanders and businesses, but also the homeless themselves. I have a feeling that, you know, out of 100 homeless, once we get 60 to 80 out of there that want help, right. and what's, that are left? Good what's left is criminals. And then we'll say, police, there you go. And that will help them because they're not having to look at 100 people anymore. They're only having to look at 10 or 20 people who are just really causing a lot of problems, stealing, you know, urinating right in front of businesses, 
um, and just causing a lot of trouble for, you know, because people deserve to feel safe in their own communities mm -hmm. and not have to worry about somebody, you know, hitting them over the head with a stick or something. So I think the better and more effective core is, it will make it easier for the police department to focus on, you know, their mission on, 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 on taking care of people who are just really doing bad things in the community. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of great feedback for the core program and yeah, admirable for your department to take this on. But for you personally, what prepared you for this? I mean, we know that you had stints previously with, uh, in the city with previous administrations, the work that you did for local hospitals, but where did this journey begin for you? Is this where you knew you wanted to be? You know, what's interesting is when I was, um, I enlisted in the military and I think I was probably 18 or 19 and I wanted to be a military policeman. I wanted to do a, a law enforcement career. My brother was a policeman. Um, and the recruiter, I guess they had a need for combat medics. So the recruiter said, you know, I want you to be a combat medic. What do you think about that? And I said, well, I really want to be a military policeman. The recruiter said, you know, but, you know, we really need these combat medics. And what do you think about being a medic? And I said, you know, I really want to be a policeman. And he said, you know, but the medic is such, so important. And then I said, okay, I'll be a combat medic. <laughs> um, so I served in the reserves with the 100th Battalion, 442nd Infantry. At that time, we were in Waikiki. Um, we kept Waikiki very safe. Um, and, I, I, and I was a reserve um, uh, EMT. I mean, I became an EMT, basically a combat medic as an EMT. And it really um, just developed this interest in EMS work. Um, I went to KCC, got my state license. And I think I came to the city in the, in the early to mid 90s as an EMT on the ambulance and have done a lot of things since then. Um, but became a physician and um, had done private practice. I did eight years of ER work. But I've always kind of come back to EMS. It's just it's so rewarding, and I, I really admire what our, our paramedics and EMTs do, and lifeguards and folks at um, health services. Just we have such a great team, and it's just such a pleasure to work with them and see their good work. Um, that it just uh, fuels me every day to fight for them for what they do for everybody in the city and county of Honolulu. Um, it's a journey, you know. There's always. Um, budgetary issues, we need more of this, we need more of that, but the mayor's been very, very supportive. I think he gets it. He sees the vision I see for our team. Um, and so I just wanna you know, come to work every day and keep advocating for them, because um, they do such great work. And you know, I know they do, because not only do I see it from my own eyes, but um, the calls and the cards I get, you know, um, even from people I know personally that say, hey, you know, your, your crew came to take care of um, you know, my uncle, for instance, and they were so professional and then they, you know, they were just so kind and um, took such good care of you know my family member and I hear that literally every week and, and not just from um, EMS but also ocean safety so it's just very rewarding um, but when it comes to core I did not have a background in um, taking care of the homeless other than what I saw in my eight years in the ER so and, and in EMS because I did work on the ambulance but um, I was very sure to when we start building our core team um, to find people that had a lot of experience in dealing with people um, who were homeless. So um, the first few hires we made were people with 10, 15, 20 years of experience in this field um, um, because you know somebody had to know what they were know what they were doing. Um, but I've learned and my journey with them has been one that where now I can help advocate for them and I can see some of the issues that have been roadblocks in the past and because I haven't been, in the system taking care of them for this long, sometimes I can come up with some out-of-the-box solutions that maybe they didn't think of because they were in this and it's just accepted um, this is the way things were. And I think medical respite is one of those things. You know, I recognized very early on that when CORE was getting people, 
they weren't sick enough to go to the ER. They, we took them to our clinic. So our clinic was the first thing. We, we opened up that mm -hmm. clinic because I said, we need someone, someplace to take people besides the ER that have a medical need. So that was number one. We got the clinic open. Well, then we kind of said, well, wait a minute. What if they need to stay somewhere for a few days to get some IV antibiotics or get this wound care? It's really inappropriate to put them right back on the corner, but the shelters weren't taking them because they had dementia. They had these, you know, one guy, one, one guy we were taking care of had a bilateral amputation and he couldn't go to the shelter. So we're finding these barriers, but it was impeding our work. And so that with our team then led us to solutions that you know, we just had to do it ourselves. And that's okay. Um, and at some point, um, we can pass it off to either a nonprofit or a state, but sometimes you just have to do it yourself to get it done. Um, and, the, and the nonprofits in the state, everybody's working very, very hard, but it's not enough. And you know it's not enough because a year ago when we started CORE, there's still people all over the place on the streets. And that's how we know our work isn't done yet. And I tell people that, tell people a few things. One, as I tell them, if this was easy, it would have been taken care of already. So right there, we know it's not easy. The second thing I tell people is nobody cares if I show you a piece of paper with our statistics. I mean, they care, but they don't care. If I tell you we helped a thousand people, I got a hundred housed, I got, you know, 200 people vouchers, you know, it, that's important. But I think what's most important is can you drive down King Street without seeing tents the whole length of King Street? Can you go to Kapiolani and Kalakaua and not see tents all along the canal there. Can you go through Waikiki and walk down the, the promenade and not get harassed by people who are high? Um, these will be, I think, more telling than any statistics I can show people. Um, can you walk through Chinatown and, and, and not trip over people who are homeless and drinking on the sidewalks? You know, these are the kind of things, not only are we helping the person who's sitting on the sidewalk in Chinatown, but we're also helping the businesses and we're helping the people who just want to walk through there and feel safe. And not just the places I mentioned, all over the island. The third thing I've realized is that we need solutions individualized for communities. And what I mean by that is when I visited the homeless encampments in Waianae, most of them are born and raised on the west side of Oahu. They are not going to come to a shelter in Chinatown or in Moili'ili or probably anywhere else on the island because they want to be out there where they're born and raised with their family and friends. So the solution for West Oahu has to be in West Oahu. And the same goes probably for the windward side, Waimanalo, and maybe even central Oahu and the North Shore. We need individualized solutions for those communities because the folks in those more rural communities oftentimes are from those communities. Um, you know, when I look in Waikiki and downtown, a lot of those people aren't originally from Hawaii. They're right. from other places. Um, there's more mental illness, and so they need a different solution. Um, I think the other thing that right now we have going for us is we have, I think, unprecedented collaboration between the governor and the mayor. And we have a surplus in the state, which is, which is helpful. Um, and we have an energized, I think, public that we finally need to do something about this very, very difficult problem. Um, and we're taking whatever we can learn from the mainland too in cities that have been successful in dealing with homelessness and houselessness. Um, so taking what we learn from other cities, um, the synergy we have between the city and the state and the nonprofits, I think this is really the year that we're gonna make progress like none other. That gentleman that forced your hand those years back when you were at that crossroad, forcing you to become a medic. I mean, do you give him a Christmas card every year? He, 
you know, it's been so long, I don't even remember him. But, you know. If not for him, you would be police chief, Jim Ireland. I mean, well, that's. You know, um, police do very good work. And um, I always envision myself as a police officer. And I think it's more just a, a, a desire to serve and to help people. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm very happy where I am now. Um, you know, I love the police department. I love the fire department. You know, everybody has their role in keeping our community safe. Um, but right now, um, I've got my hands full for sure um, in this department. And I think going forward, you know, CORE has its mission uh, and we need to grow. Um, EMS has its mission and I think we have a good plan for growth in EMS. You know, like I said, we have 22 ambulances. We're adding two this year, but we need about 30 to get this island adequately covered. Um, and then in ocean safety, you know, we're, we're going to extended hours. We're going to have everybody on four tens, the whole division, 10 hour shifts um, by the end of the year, um, hopefully by the end of the summer. Um, and then we've identified needs to in ocean safety. You know, I believe we need four more towers, um, one at Electric Beach, one at Kalama Beach and Kailua, and probably one or two on the North Shore. Um, Sharks Cove for mm -hmm. one and, yeah. and probably one other one. And we probably need four more rescue ski teams. Um, we have eight now, two in each district, but we probably need four more, uh, one in each district, which is uh, would be a total of 12 rescue ski teams. So we need to catch up, we need to grow, we need to meet the challenges that uh, our community and our visitors um, you know, uh, bring us. Um, but I think, again, with such a wonderful, professional and compassionate team, uh, we're gonna do it. It's just, we're gonna have to do it in steps. But what about you? What's next for you? Because I know of a gentleman who was a doctor, given it was on the Big Island, held some leadership positions, then went on to become the governor of the state of Hawaii. Yeah, I'm very happy where I am. <laughs> very happy where I am. So, you know, um, my job is to support this team and, and I'm gonna continue to do that. I don't know if it'll always be as the director, but I love, I love this work and I love our team. And I'm very happy in this little office here by the airport. <laughs> Uh, Jim, <laughs> summer break is almost here. That means a lot more people will be out in the water, out on the trails. Yep. Um, kids will be home alone as well. What kind of calls do we see an uptick in for, for those summer months? Definitely, and we're already seeing it, definitely more um, rescues on the trails, definitely more um, beach activity. So not just in the water, but also on the sand. Um, we did have the one shark attack a few weeks ago. It was, it was publicized on the South Shore. Fortunately, those are, I'm gonna knock on woods, extremely, extremely rare. Um, but just anytime people are out and about having recreational activities, there are accidents and you know people fall and um, just people need to slow down. They need to be careful. You know, we're seeing, a, unfortunately, a lot of motorcycle accidents mm -hmm. and e-bike accidents. People need to be very careful on those on two-wheeled vehicles need to wear helmets. We're seeing like teenagers running around on e-bikes without helmets. Um, the kids need to wear their helmets. Uh, people need to wear their seatbelts. Um, unfortunately, alcohol. Um, you know, I joke, and it's not a joke, but we say, hey, if there wasn't alcohol around, you know, we'd have a lot less business. And, um, you know, people get in fights when they drink too much. They fall down when they drink too much. And certainly when they drive, not only can they hurt and kill themselves, but they hurt and kill other people. Um, so just all the kind of normal stuff we say every year, you know, just be careful, slow down, don't drink and drive. Um, enjoy yourself in moderation. Um, you know, if you have a loved one who's abusing or addicted to narcotics, um, consider getting um, Narcan, Naloxone. It reverses the effects, it can save people. It's still available free. Um, and there's a website you can go to to find that. But um, 
that's a that's an unfortunate reality we're dealing with now too is more and more fentanyl overdoses um, the last few we've had at the city people thought they were doing cocaine and they snorted a line of what they thought was cocaine and it was fentanyl and they ended up unconscious and not breathing and they were saved by fent um, Narcan, naloxone um, but that's just another potential way people can really get hurt or die um, and, you know and, and what people are doing now and you know, we know kids um, experiment with drugs, and this is just really bad stuff people need to stay away from. What do you think is going on on our trails? Because in the last few weeks, Lanikai Pillbox, a trail that people don't really consider that difficult, um, has had incidents, even a fatality. And then over the weekend, we also had an incident at the Mokes. Um, you know, is it just people are becoming more brave now that we're out of the pandemic, or people are you know, maybe not in the best shape, trying to get back into shape. What is it with our trails? The trails um, offer an opportunity to just get out and see nature and recreate, and, and it's all good. Everything about our trails is good. Um, but I do think sometimes people that may be out of shape and not ready for a certain trail, especially visitors, um, get into a trail and they start having you know, shortness of breath or chest pain. Um, the most rescues are actually on Diamond Head and Cocoa Head, and it's mostly medical problems. People just... Um, overestimated um, their abilities. Um, and then in the other trails like um, Olomana and some of the pillbox hikes, um, and as well as a variety of other trails across Oahu, um, people slip and fall, again, they're out of shape, um, they get lost, so a lot of different reasons. But I think government, I think, can step up as well, whether it's the city or the state, depending on who owns the trail, to maybe consider better signage, more information, trail markers, maybe some admonishments to say, hey, you know, if you can't comfortably run a mile in 10 minutes, um, you shouldn't probably be on this trail, um, to try to just mitigate some of that, um, those injuries, um, or, or steer people to trails that maybe are like considered easier, like for instance, the Makapu Lighthouse. Um, real short, paved, um, not super challenging. Amazingly, we still get calls there too, but again, it's usually for medical calls. Um, but yeah, I think it's just people want to get out. They're tired of being pent up. They want to get in shape. They want to see nature and trails is great. Um, it's just people have to know their limits. You said running a mile in 10 minutes. What's your mile time? Uh, you know, in the police academy, it was about seven, seven and a half minutes or so. I see the, the bruising on your, on your, on your knuckles. Are, yeah. are you a fighter? Sometimes. <laughs> Punching bag. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a little movie, movie tied to unwind. Movie tied to unwind. Well, Jim, thanks so yeah. much for your time. Yeah. Is there anything we missed? No. And if you have a question for Dr. Jim Ireland, the mayor, any of the departments here in the city and county of Honolulu, you can submit your podcast questions by heading to oneoahu.org slash podcast. And for residents in Makali, Mo'ili'ili, Manoa, Pololo, Waikiki, we'll be answering your questions directly at a town hall meeting tonight at the Alawai Golf Course Clubhouse. That meeting starts at 6 p.m. The next week, Thursday, May 18th, we'll be at Kalakaua Middle School to hear from the residents in Kalihi, Paulama, Chinatown, Downtown, and Kaka'ako. That meeting also set for 6 p.m. We hope to see you there, and I hope you'll listen in to next week's podcast. We'll be back with Mayor Rick Blangiardi. That's next time right here on the One O'ahu podcast. Until then, aloha.